For the good of the climate, let's just stop driving cars. Well, that sounds ridiculous when you can obtain more efficient cars or hybrids, plug-ins, and EVs. Why shouldn't the same logic apply for the critics of beef consumption? It turns out that some cows are the Teslas and others are gas guzzlers. Just like efficient, climate-friendly cars, there are climate-friendly cows producing more milk and or meat per unit of greenhouse gases than the inefficient models. Just make the right choices in transportation and in what you eat. You don't have to give up cars and you don't have to give up beef, but you should encourage the car makers and the ranchers who are taking the right steps. This is logical if you think about it, but it still isn't sinking in. So Farm to Table Talk is bringing back this conversation with Dr. Frank Mitlerner, the director of the Clear Center at UC Davis. He explains that most of the arable land in the world cannot be used to produce crops, but can be used for forages and grazing for stomached ruminants like elk, deer, and bison, cattle, goats, and sheep. They're the master converters. And Dr. Frank Mitlerner explains how we should look at this and how we can make choices to encourage what we need to see happening in climate-friendly agriculture and transportation all around the world. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. Many people seem to believe that eating less beef is going to save the planet. Well, my guest today has had to answer that question or that challenge more times than I'm sure he even wants to count. I'm, I'm really happy to welcome Dr. Frank Mitlerner, who's the director of the Clear Center. He's also uh, in the School of Agriculture, the Animal Science Department at UC Davis, which is a great institution and often thought of as the top ag school in the world. And Frank, I want to welcome you to Farm to Table Talk. Well, thank you for having me, Roger. Frank, you end up speaking to people all over the world. I've seen some of your presentations. It seems like everybody is, especially they're associated with the livestock industry, are almost desperate to find a friend that can bring some facts to the argument because they're being criticized with what I opened with. And that is that there are a lot of people that are saying that to save the world, to save the planet, we need to cut back on livestock production and the consumption of animal products. How did you get drafted into being on the front of that whole discussion? At some point in time, when you were doing um, your various programs at the University of California, at some point in time, there, there wasn't this much criticism. I mean, it's not something that's been forever that people are saying that we shouldn't uh, be producing livestock. But close to the heels with climate change, people started making so much more noise about that suggestion that the planet could be saved if we were just not eating animal products. Was there a time you said that, okay, this is the first day of the beginning of this whole thing, or has it just been, been just a gradual snowballing effect? Yeah, this is a, a very interesting topic. Um, for me, it started with a United Nations FAO, Food and Agriculture Organization, report that came out back in 2006. The name of the report was Livestock's Long Shadow. And this Livestock's Long Shadow report um, said that livestock produces 18, that's one eight, 18 percent of all global greenhouse gases. And it said in this executive summary that the livestock sector emits more greenhouse gases leading to climate change than the entire global transportation system. Wow. So my team then did a analysis of that report and we found that there was a flaw in there, a significant one, um, namely that the livestock sector was assessed with one method, a comprehensive one called a life cycle assessment, but the transportation system was not. For transportation, they only looked at tailpipe emissions. What I mean by comprehensive on the livestock side is 
they looked at soils and plants and feed and animals and manure and transporting the animals to uh, processing and so forth, all the way until somebody eats those products. That's referred to, as I said, as a life cycle assessment, okay, cradle to grave assessment. On the transportation side, they didn't look into what it takes to produce cars, trucks, trains, planes, ships, roads, harbors, airports, and so on, but only what kind of greenhouse gases emanate when you burn gas. And that was an apples to oranges comparison. I um, published uh, my criticism and the authors of Livestock's Long Shadow agreed with my criticism insofar that this comparison was inappropriate and wrong. They then later conducted a second a follow-up uh, report that arrived at a relatively lower global number. And remember, these are global numbers, okay? These are not US numbers. Um, arriving at a number that's 14% of all greenhouse gases in the world caused from human activity uh, being associated with livestock. Now, in the United States, because other sectors are so much more, uh, so much stronger, such as transportation, power production and use, cement industry and so on, the relative contribution of livestock to total greenhouse gas emissions is approximately 4%. And that's the number from our emission inventory um, that the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, is using 4%. So beef is around 2 to 3%, dairy is about 2%, and these are now um, life cycle assessment numbers. So the people who criticize animal agriculture are not different today than what they were 10 or 15 years ago. 10 or 15 years ago, they used different arguments, such as ethical arguments around animal welfare, animal rights, and so on. And they switched over to the climate issue, thinking that there's much more um, meat behind it, so to say. Okay? So that, that, uh, that the livestock sector is more vulnerable in this field. And this is why we hear about this day in, day out. And that's why I hear about this day in, day out, because I'm a subject matter expert in this field. I want to back up um, when you were talking about all the things they took into consideration when they come up with the, some of the numbers about comparing livestock production to transportation. Does it? Did they include like what it even takes to make the tractors that uh, that were used to till the fields that were ultimately to produce uh, livestock feed? On the livestock side, they looked at everything, cradle to grave everything that is needed to produce a pound of beef or a gallon of milk or a carton of eggs. And that includes the entire life cycle. Okay? So they did this and they did it well for livestock, but they didn't do it for transportation, yet they used that comparison of livestock to transportation in the executive summary. And that's what everybody gloomed onto. That was the beginning. That was the beginning of this whole discussion of livestock and climate the Livestock's Long Shadow Report. And, um, you know, my work along those lines has led to a significant impact, but also significant criticism by those who are not friends of animal agriculture. As we speak, there's a conversation going on in Clubhouse that I've talked about before in my podcast, and I go into Clubhouse sometime, and it's titled tonight it was the meatless monday this is a monday when we're having this conversation and it's the title was industry attempts to greenwash beef and they're going to be um arguing uh, not really arguing but saying that regenerative grazing you know it's not all it's cracked up to be and carbon storage is exaggerated it's, but it strikes me, though, that, you know, this goes back nearly 15 years. I mean, that, you know, if, if they were convincible, if those people could have their mind changed, you would think that the facts would be working on them by now. You know, I have to tell you, I, uh, I am cautious in engaging with some of those folks because their minds are so set that uh, none of what I have to say or none of the things I have found and published uh, will make a difference. Um, for example, you just mentioned Meatless Monday, a um, publication published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences by Hall and White found 
that if the entire United States, 330 million Americans were to go meatless Monday, that that would reduce our carbon footprint as a nation by 0.3%. It's not nothing, it's something, but it's certainly not changing the impact the United States has on climate, okay? If the entire country were to go vegan, no more animal source foods whatsoever, then according to that paper, we would reduce the carbon footprint of the United States by 2.6%. Now, um, I have no issue with people being vegan. In my opinion, people need to make their food choices uh, just as freely as their partner choices and um, who they vote for and so on. These are personal choices we make in life. And uh, it's really none of my, it's none of my business or none of anybody else's business to tell anyone else what to eat. Okay, that, I, I feel very strongly about that. Um, but um, to say that it's all really uh, hinging on what we eat, whether or not we reduce our impact on climate, uh, is not just wrong, it is dangerously wrong. And the reason why it's dangerously wrong is because it sidetracks us from the 800-pound gorilla around climate, and that is the use of fossil fuels. In the United States, fossil fuel use, production and use, is responsible for 80% of greenhouse gases, 8-0. And that's transportation, cars, trucks, trains, planes, ships, and so on. And it's power plants producing our, the power we all use, and uh, it's the cement industry. These three produce 80%. Animal agriculture, 4%. And while that is a sizable amount, it is certainly not the maker or breaker on the impacts we have on climate. And what I want to stress here as well is that the main greenhouse gas associated with animal agriculture is methane. And methane has been looked at in ways that are uh, incorrect. And here's why, just really briefly, I can't go through all the details, but while the other greenhouse gases, such as CO2, carbon dioxide, or nitrous oxide, are only produced and once they're in the air, they stay there for hundreds or thousands of years, methane is different. And methane is the, the chief greenhouse gas from animal agriculture. Why is methane different? Because methane is not just produced, but there is an atmospheric removal process, a natural atmospheric removal process for methane. And roughly the same amount of methane that's being produced by livestock, by fossil fuels and so on, Roughly the same amount of methane that's produced is also destroyed by a process called oxidation. And that oxidative process of removing methane leads to the fact that methane has a lifespan of only one decade. And if we manage to further reduce methane through the use of enteric uh, so feed additives for cows or manure treatments and so on, if we reduce methane, we are pulling carbon out of the atmosphere much as if we were to plant trees, uh, which also take CO2 out of the atmosphere during photosynthesis, we can do something similar by reducing methane, and we do. So what I'm telling you is that people oftentimes mischaracterize methane, don't really understand methane, and not just the dangers around methane, but also the opportunities it provides when we mitigate it. About methane, we primarily think of those uh, coming from ruminants, so uh, particularly beef cattle and dairy cattle, but is there methane associated with hog production and poultry production? The main sources of methane are uh, around fossil fuels. Again, that's um, when we, um, when we uh, frack, a lot of methane comes out of the ground, you know, right down where the, where the fossil fuels are stored, a lot of methane is stored as well. Um, so when we, when we extract fossil fuels, a lot of methane comes out and is leaked through pipelines and so on. Um, that's one source. Another source is rice production uh, under anaerobic conditions. Uh, rice produces methane. And then a main uh, other source are ruminant livestock. Uh, why? Ruminants, because they produce methane in their digestive system and they belch it out. It comes out the front end. But all livestock, of course, produces manure. And when that manure is stored under anaerobic conditions, meaning oxygen-deprived conditions, then methane is formed. 
And that methane, if you just store it under the, under the sky in open containment facilities, can escape into the atmosphere. And we don't want to see that. But thank God that can be mitigated. Here in California, we have a new system of covering lagoons from dairies, for example. And these covered lagoons collect the biogas, the methane, from the waste storage. And then that biogas is not just collected, but it's converted, it's cleaned up and converted into a fuel type. And that fuel type is called renewable natural gas. This biogas to fuel conversion, it's called the biogas to RNG conversion, is considered the most carbon negative fuel type conversion there is. And that means we are net reducing carbon to a large extent. Our dairy sector in California, and that's validated by the state of California, has reduced its methane by 25% over the last three years. And that is nothing short of sensational. It's, it's amazing, but I, I want to better understand a little bit more between these species, though, too. So, mm -hmm. in fact, most of the hogs are in a confinement type of, of arrangement right now. So, the, mm -hmm. the manure is going to be stored in some type of lagoon. And yes. so, just in that whole process, there will be methane produced, even though they don't belch like a ruminant animal belches. Is that yes. right? That's and, correct. And the chickens, now the chicken litter uh, that is applied to fields and so forth, is there methane in that process when it's, it's more composted and dried and, and, and put on fields uh, from, from uh, egg laying or you know, other kind of poultry operations? Yeah, methane is generated under oxygen-deprived conditions, under anaerobic conditions. Under aerobic conditions, the carbon goes a different route. Namely, it becomes CO2. But under anaerobic conditions, in a lagoon, uh, carbon goes the methane route. Wow, okay. So once you compost manure, then the nature of compost involves turning of that material, of that organic material. And when you turn it, then you subject oxygen to Ah. to that biomass, and that does not lend itself uh, to methanogens that would produce methane. Those methane-forming microbes are called methanogens, and they cannot live under oxygen-rich conditions. So, so you need to have oxygen-deprived conditions. So people that are just against meat consumption for various reasons other than necessarily diet, but some just don't like the idea that animals are dying for for food, yeah. uh, they're able to be um, critical of all livestock. Uh, but cattle, in particular, have been singled out because of, of this methane process, which you explained, which is um, gets turned around, and you know, and and you've explained it in a way that I'm I'm going to learn so that I can explain it as well. But. One of the things I find it interesting in this this whole conversation, Frank, is I just happened to listen to a podcast where somebody from New Holland, the tractor company, is working on tractors that will be fueled with methane that could be produced from these digesters, uh, similar to, mm -hmm. to, to biofuel. And it sounds like they're very close to getting that out into the field. So there should be a time where perhaps these... Uh, digesters that you have actually are going to be able to fuel uh, tractors on the farms, isn't it? Well, we have a program here in California that incentivizes the conversion of biogas, of this manure-derived gas that comes from dairies, into fuels. The fuels that we are talking about are called RNG or renewable natural gas. Okay. That RNG that's generated in these from, from these biogas uh, digesters, that RNG is already going into semi-trucks in California. Mm. And when you convert this biogas into RNG, you receive the so-called low-carbon fuel standard credits, mm -hmm. which are uh, very high credits. And the reason why they are so high is because this conversion of biogas to RNG is the most carbon-negative fuel type there is. So the state of California strongly incentivizes this technology because it's the most effective um, type of fuel production. 
So this RNG is already used for heavy vehicles and it's replacing diesel in these vehicles with a much cleaner RNG. So you have a double whammy. You first reduce, you capture the biogas and reduce methane on the dairy. And secondly, you then take that biogas and you convert it into fuel, replacing diesel with a much cleaner RNG. And that is what makes this technology so um, interesting to the state of California, because we seek to reduce methane by 40%. That's the technology that will get us there. You know, Frank, uh, all over the world, they should be looking at this, but um, all over the world is, is not equal. I'm not saying that quite right, but, um, but production practices and utilizing the technologies like, like we do here, um, it doesn't happen everywhere. I mean, could, could you comment? I mean, because on, uh, where we started with was your taking exception and I think disproving the issue that, um, that livestock production has to be a big issue, that proportionately it's been hugely exaggerated and you've walked through some of the benefits. So we start with the biggest argument that we should be to save the world, cut back on, on animal foods and, um, you you dealt with that one. But the other one I want to talk about is the unique nature of ruminants and their ability to take advantage of of, of food that uh, no one else can use. And, and when you look at the whole world, Frank, I think you've done some interesting conversations and presentations that I've seen on YouTube. Could you, could you explain that a little bit about how much of the world can really produce food that humans can use versus what would have to be grazed? Yeah, so internationally and globally, the organization that deals with food production, with agriculture and its environmental externalities, is the United Nations FAO, Food and Agricultural Organization. I used to be chairman of an important committee within the FAO called LEAP, L-E-A-P, um, which benchmarks the impact of the livestock sector on all aspects of the environment, water, soil, air, climate, and so forth. And uh, while I worked with them, I uh, became very familiar with some of the authors of many of their publications. One of them um, put out a publication called Tackling Climate Through Livestock. And um, this is an FAO publication that came out a few years ago, and it showed that 84%, that's 84, 84% of all feed fed to livestock globally is non-human edible feed, 84%. If you look at all agricultural land in the world and how much of that agricultural land is suitable versus not suitable to grow crops, plants for human consumption, then it might surprise some of your listeners to learn that of all agricultural land in the world, two thirds are referred to as marginal and one third as arable. Marginal means that on these lands, you cannot grow crops because it's too steep, it's too rocky, not enough water, the soil quality is not good enough and so on. You cannot grow crops on two thirds of all agricultural lands in the world, referred to as marginal lands. What do we do with these two thirds of all agricultural lands that we cannot use to grow crops? We use ruminant livestock there. Why? Because ruminant livestock can utilize cellulose containing forages, such as grasses, and they can as the only type of species, break down that cellulose and convert it into animal source foods, such as beef and dairy and goat meat and, and so on. So this cellulose to animal source food conversion um, is nothing short of a miracle, in my opinion, because it's solar powered. It is regenerative in general. It is not just producing food that's very nutrient rich, but it's also enriching our soils. Those soils, those marginal soils are generally very nutrient poor. If you graze livestock there, you add nutrients through the dung of these animals that then encourages and stimulates microbial growth in the soil, 
And these microbes are of particular importance to increase the soil carbon sequestration potential of these marginal soils, meaning the potential of these soils to trap carbon that's in the atmosphere and lock it down in the soils. So on two thirds of all agricultural lands in the world, and the same is true for the United States, you cannot grow crops. What you can do there is have ruminant livestock. It is the remaining one third of all agricultural land that's referred to as arable. And here you can grow crops such as nuts and soy and corn and all the others. That's one third. What's interesting too in this context is that these crops need fertilizers to grow. Half of the fertilizers throughout the world and here in the United States are chemical fertilizers that are very energy intensive to being produced. And the other half are organic fertilizers. And these organic fertilizers, almost without exception, are animal manure stemming from animal agriculture. So those people who say we should just stop animal agriculture altogether and change those uh, areas that are currently used for animal agriculture and grow crops there instead, they need to do what I did the last two weeks, which is travel a little bit and go through Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, New Mexico, Utah, Arizona, and then they should take a good look how much arable land they see where crops are grown for human food consumption. I just, did the same, I just did the same kind of trip, Frank. It's amazing. I didn't bump into you. <laughs> I was going home and, you know, I started taking pictures because I thought and people think of look out here and think, how are they going to be producing any food? The other way that people, if they're not going to take the kind of drives that you and I both took separately, um, the flyover. I mean, if you just fly across the country, across the continent and mm -hmm. look down and see, and you, you see that point, which you make the that point, starting with a piece of paper that everybody listening to this has a piece of paper. It's like eight and a half by 11, and then also holding up a business card. Could you explain what those represent? Yeah. So imagine a regular sheet of paper. This regular sheet of paper is roughly um, uh, the size of our earth. Okay. So now you take this sheet of paper and you fold it twice. And once you fold it twice, it's roughly the size of a postcard. This postcard size piece of paper is roughly the total amount of land in the world. The difference between the large sheet and this postcard sheet is, is water. Okay. So a postcard size is approximately the total land mass. So then I show people my business card and I hold this up, my business card up and and uh, contrast that to this postcard size piece of paper. And I tell people the equal amount of land characterized by my business card is the total amount of agricultural land. So the postcard size piece is all land and the business card is all agricultural land. The rest, the difference between the two are deserts and cities and forests and so on. So the, post, uh, the, the business card is now all agricultural land. Then I fold my business card into one piece that's two thirds and the other piece that's one third. And I rip my business card into pieces to show people how little, how little land we have available for agriculture in general, that two thirds of that agricultural land is marginal and used for ruminant livestock currently. And there is no other food producing purpose for that land. You can't just change that miraculously into some nut production or soy production or corn production because there is not enough water or soil that is suitable to grow this. What grows there is grass. And what is contained in this grass is cellulose. And the only animals that can convert the cellulose are ruminants because of their unique microbial gut content. That is why ruminants can make use of that land. Without ruminants, we cannot make use of the vast majority of marginal land. And then I show them this one third of my business card that's remaining, which is all arable land, where we can grow all the crops that we are growing for humans and animals. That is how limited we are with respect to resources. And this is, I hope, um, showing, depicting why 
it is so important that we use all means available to us to feed a growing global population. One last thing. I just recently turned 50. When I was a little boy, we had 3 billion people in the world. 3 billion. Today we have 7.8 uh, billion. And by the time I'm an old man, we'll have over 9 billion people in the world. And that means we will have tripled human population throughout our lifetime. And the question, the ethical question we have to ask ourselves is, how can we feed three times more people throughout our lifetimes without having three times more natural resources to do so? And I have news for you and your listeners, and that news is we have to use all means available to us, improving efficiencies of food production, using marginal spaces and so on. And if we don't do that, we will have a 2050 challenge uh, that will be massive on our hands. You know, it's chilling when you stop to think about that. And, and you've pointed out oftentimes that transportation uh, as a source of utilizing fossil fuels is so much larger than uh, any of the concerns involved in all of the inputs into agriculture. But I want to take this looking closely again at comparing cars and cows, because what that makes me think of a little bit is that not all cars are equal, just like perhaps not all cows are equal. I mean, you could say that the answer to transportation issues is to just stop driving and shouldn't be like you. I mean, drive all over, looking at all these states and wondering how they're going to feed anybody out there. But instead of just not driving, drive something that gets better mileage. And there's a similar way in, in applying uh, technology and production practices and genetics and everything, isn't there, on the animal side, that not all animals are, are equal or not all industries in, in what they're contributing. Well, there's no question about that. When I hear um, statistics, and you see them all over the media, that report on um, the impact beef has on climate, what you generally see is average beef greenhouse gases globally, okay? globally, a global number, compared to average greenhouse gases of other commodities, such as apples, tomatoes, corn, soy, and so on. Comparing those things makes no sense. You cannot compare a pound of beef to a pound of tomatoes or carrots because the nutrient profile is totally different, obviously, and hence this is an unfair comparison. But the other one is comparing or just using a global number for a commodity such as beef. Why is that unfair? Because there is a huge variability around the world with respect to how food is produced and what kind of resources go into that. I'll give you some, uh, some uh, explanation here. So imagine somebody were to ask you, Roger, what are the what are the emissions of a car? What are the emissions of a car? Mm -hmm. And let's say you were a vehicle automobile expert. Then obviously you would, you would think for a sec and you would say, well, you have to be more specific with your question because obviously there is no global average car. Um, there are gazillion different makes and models. There are people who drive a car that are 80 and people who drive a car that are 18. There are people driving in the mountains and others in the deserts, and there are people driving in cities. There are people driving very old cars and people driving very new cars. There are people driving electric cars and there are people driving diesel cars and so forth. There's a huge variability of vehicle use, vehicle makes and models throughout the world. So having one global average automobile number for emissions makes no sense. I think everybody would understand that. Yeah. It makes no sense. But the same is done for beef, for dairy, and all the other livestock commodities. You see those global average numbers floating all over our news outlets. Now, why is that a problem? It is a problem because in a country like the United States, we are producing 18%, that's one eight, 18% of all global beef with 6% of all global beef cattle. Okay, we have an incredibly efficient system of producing beef and dairy and other livestock and poultry uh, commodities. So for example, um, we used to have 25 million dairy cows in this country back in the 1950s, 25 million. 
Today, we have no longer 25. We now have 9 million, so much fewer cows. But we are producing 60% more milk with this much smaller herd. The carbon footprint of a glass of milk has shrunk by two-thirds in the United States. So we have 9 million dairy cows in this country. We have more horses in the United States today than we have dairy cows. 9.5 million horses, 9 million dairy cows. Now, let's take a look at another country. A major dairy country is India. In India, they have 300 million dairy animals. We have nine, they have 300. On average, their dairy cow produces 1,000 pounds of milk per cow per year, 1,000. In the United States, it's 23,000 pounds of milk per cow per year. Mm -hmm. We are producing 10 to 20 times more milk per animal in this country than in many other countries of the world. And it is unfair to just lump all of us into one global average uh, just to convey some kind of a, a narrative that makes livestock and poultry look bad. You know, it's in- incredible. And I would assume then that the, the, the belching, the creation of methane is very similar. It's, it's based on the life of a cow, whether that cow is uh, producing a lot or a little. Um, I, I think it's an excellent, excellent point. Now, I want to come back and just ask you quickly again about the dairy industry, because in California and some of the other Western states I'm familiar with, we have very, very large dairies. Mm-hmm. Those cows aren't out roaming around pastures for the most part. There's some, but for the most part, they are in a, in a dry lot, as we, as we say, and feed is brought to them. Could you kind of explain why uh, they're still utilizing and, 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 and how that ruminant advantage is in play when they aren't out in pastures? So uh, it is true that in a state like California, the vast majority of cows is not housed on pasture. The, the organic dairies are oftentimes still pasture-based in Northern California. North of San Francisco, you find quite a few of them. They're relatively small in size. And when I say small, I mean 500 cows per dairy or so. That's what we consider relatively small. The vast majority of cows in California is located in the San Joaquin Valley. And here the average dairy size is around 500 milking cows. Okay? And these cows are housed in barns, in so-called freestall barns. And these are concrete floored barns. They are open side walled. And so there's natural ventilation going through there. The cows are milked three times a day. Their manure is generally flushed out of the barns and into the lagoon where the manure is stored. And that's a very uh, typical housing system for California. Now, the vast majority of what these animals eat are silage, which is fermented feed made from whole corn plants or from uh, various other um, commodities that you cut into small pieces and then you store it on the top as silage. Okay, this is almost like a sauerkraut that uh, is preserved for many months to be used. That's called silage. Almost 50% of what we feed to our cows in California is silage. And that's a, a, high for, a high roughage kind of piece of the diet. And then approximately 50% of the diet of California cows are so-called co-products and byproducts. If you've ever asked yourself why we have so many dairy cows in California, one of the main reasons is because we have so many specialty crops. Because there's so much from the nut sector, from the cotton sector, from other sectors that would otherwise just go to waste, to landfills and so on, that we can use in the dairy and ruminant sector because these animals are capable of digesting it. For example, cotton seeds or almond hulls. Uh, all different kinds of things that have no other um, purpose that would normally be wasted are fed to our livestock because these microbes in their digestive tract can convert that into what's called volatile fatty acids, and that's then converted into milk and meat. So approximately half of everything that we feed to our cows are co-products and byproducts that are recycled nutrients from the crop sector. And that is one of the reasons why we have so many cows because we have 400 specialty crops in the state. 
We are producing 50% of all fruits and vegetables for the United States here in California. And a lot of the byproducts that we can't eat go straight into our cows. And without them, we would send it to our landfills to produce methane there. No. Frank, it's tremendous what you've, what you've shared with us. And now explain to me um, your center, the Clear Center. Is, uh, is, is this an area that, that, you, that you focus on in particular with the Clear Center? So, you know, I'm an animal scientist. And I'm specialized in the environmental footprint of livestock. I'm also specialized in animal welfare, uh, husbandry and housing of livestock. Um, and I keep hearing um, people in agriculture saying, well, nobody tells our story. And I'm not there to tell their story. But what I am there to do is um, finding ways to optimize the way that we raise livestock and also um, share that knowledge with the public at large. Because the public at large is increasingly more often interested in how we do that. In the past, they just didn't care much. Okay? People in the supermarkets didn't care much about how their milk and cheese and all the other things, how they were produced. But now, particularly the younger generation is asking questions. They want to know where their bacon comes from. How is it raised? You know, how are these pigs raised that generate the bacon? Um, how is milk produced? How are all you know, yogurts and so on, how are they produced? Um, and, and I'm a specialist in this field. And uh, I felt that in addition to doing the research on how to optimize food production, particularly from the animal sector, it is equally important to communicate what we know. And so I established the CLEAR Center, which is a sustainability center. Half of it is research. The other half is communication. And I communi uh, communicate what I know about the impact of livestock on climate, on air quality, on water quality, um, welfare-related issues in the livestock sector and on and so on with a clear sense very large audience. I have about um, 3 million impressions on my Twitter account alone on this clear center and my personal Twitter account, which is GHG Guru. Um, and um, I write blogs on uh, all different kinds of topics, oftentimes related to newspaper articles that came out, unfortunately, oftentimes very wrong. I mean, there's oftentimes information that's, come, that's coming even from trusted sources that is blatantly wrong. And, um, and I feel that it is my, uh, my role in infusing the science-based information that we generate through peer-reviewed publications, not just through the scientific literature, but also to the public at large, which is interested in it. It seems like it's, uh, it's really hard to get ahead on this issue. There are so many things, almost every day, you know, something else is coming out where people are just assuming that, well, I hear we should be cutting back on our, our meat consumption or our cheese consumption or dairy consumption. And, you know, I, there's always been people that have felt that way because we've talked about it before. They were just against production practices or they had other good reasons that they felt they wanted to be uh, vegans or vegetarians. But now it's kind of getting into things like meatless Mondays and kids are being encouraged at school to be able to, uh, you know, cut back on the meat that's served in school systems and so forth. And it's difficult for people that are in agriculture to get out in front of it. And that's where, Frank, it seems to me that we not only are fortunate that you're telling this and that the center is telling this, but we need to produce some more. I'd like to see every land-grant university in the nation have a clear center uh, equivalent. Yeah, it is uh, bewildering to me how few of us in academia are out there communicating with the public because um, people want to know more and more often uh, how food is produced. Not just what does the food that I eat do to my health and do to my welfare, but also what does it do to the animals? What does it do to the soils? What does it do to our air or climate? Um, are these things raised ethically? Okay. Is the husbandry and welfare of those animals uh, guaranteed? Um, Oftentimes we see shocking pictures, shocking videos from some outlier operators that are unfortunately still out there and uh, that have no place in animal agriculture, okay? They should all be 
uh, immediately shut down, in my opinion. I, I want to be very clear. I do not tolerate at all uh, any kind of welfare infringements or environmental uh, pollutant uh, discharge. And when I become aware of it, I make sure that those who need to know about this will know about this. Um, first within the industry, because there has to be done some self-policing so that bad apples uh, stop being bad apples. Improve, clean up their act, or get out of it. Um, but the vast majority of farmers, the vast majority of farmers is very responsible in what they do. We have a food system in the United States that's the envy of the world. I want to share some statistics with you before we close. The agricultural census of the United States that's run by the USDA has reported that we have approximately 2 million farmers in this country. 2 million sounds like a, you know, a sizable number, but I learned that 1.5 of the 2 million farmers have an annual revenue of less than $25,000. One and a half of 2 million farmers are pretty much hobby farmers. They do this on the side. And I learned through the, the reading of this agricultural census that it is 80,000 farmers in this country, 80,000, that produce two-thirds of all the food we all consume. 80,000. The average age of these 80,000 farmers is age 60. That means they are close to retirement. Mm -hmm. And they are thinking as we speak, do we need this public scrutiny, this um, this constant criticism of people who might be well-meaning but oftentimes are indeed ill-informed um, of, of people who tell us that we are inhumane that we are polluting that we are producing stuff that's bad for uh, people's health and or planet health do we need that or do we need to get out of here and when they make these decisions they have their kids in mind because they themselves are, are largely retirement age think about this we have for every five California farmers older than 65 years, we have one farmer younger than 35. We have a sustainability crisis with respect to where our food will come from in the years to come if the pressures on our farming community continues the way it is now. We have to help our farmers in advancing the agricultural and the food system to a degree that is socially and environmentally and so on acceptable. We don't want them to stop producing food. We need them to produce food because they are one of the two most important societal sectors, with the one being the health sector and the second one being the food producing sector. We need them and we need to improve where necessary, but certainly don't throw the, bath, the baby out of the bathtub. Well, I would assume that the aging problem uh, is is pretty nearly an issue worldwide too, is it not? It's uh, the Canadians have it, and the Europeans seem to have it, the, the age thing. So it's it's not just a North American issue. It is true. Most developed countries have that. People are not willing uh, to work uh, physically very much in most developed countries. But while it is a global issue. Um, Closer here to home, we have to think about um, how do we deal with this here domestically? Because if these 80,000, think about that's a very small number. If these 80,000 farmers say, or even half of them say, I don't want to continue this business. <clears throat> Where will our food come from in the future? Where will we get it from? We'll not get it from Europe. We'll not get it from South America or from China. We will run into food security issues if we don't get this sorted out, and we must get it sorted out. We also don't want to lose these farms because if we do, let's say if we were to, to reduce half of them, then the remaining sector would be much larger. Those farms would be humongous, and most people don't really want that. They want farms to be you know, at a scale that's relatively you know, farm-like and not well, and that circles back to the subject we've talked so much about, and that is when you talk about trying to get in and try to create some opportunities at scale, um, 
livestock are a part of it. And the people that are making decisions as whether or not they're going to be able to have a career raising livestock, um, no doubt are frustrated too when they hear that they're being criticized. Um, and that, with that, Frank, I just want to come back and and ask you to tell people where they can find information like like you have. And I, I'm going to hasten to jump in in front of you and just say that you have some wonderful YouTube interviews. And I've gotten on and I've seen several of them. And uh, uh, But you apparently have a website as well. So uh, where do you suggest people that want to get the kind of information that you have available if they want to follow up with you? So my name is Mitlöhner. My last name is Mitlöhner, M-I-T-L-O-E-H-N-E-R. And uh, I do have many YouTube interviews and so on uh, that are available on YouTube for free. Um, I have done a video recently with a clear center called Rethinking Methane. If you Google YouTube and Rethinking Methane, you'll get there. A five-minute video explaining what we've learned about methane. Recently, I was interviewed by a YouTuber uh, on the topic of, and he titled it, Eating Less Meat Won't Save the Planet. And here's why. And uh, that's a 26-minute interview, but it covers a lot of the things we just went over. And it um, has been watched by close to 3 million people so far. So these topics are of great importance and interest to uh, a growing number of folks out there. Uh, the CLEAR Center, of course, clear.ucdavis.edu, has a lot of uh, important information, explainers in and around food production and agriculture, as well as uh, blogs. I do write uh, blogs that are all on that page and available for free. And... Um, and of course, I'm on Twitter. My uh, Twitter handle is ghgguru, and you will find a lot of interesting conversation happening there as well. Well, you've done a tremendous job, and there's so much work to do. And I would only hope that as we have another conversation in the future, that we find that there's a lot more people kind of joining in uh, and learning from what you're sharing and getting their voices out there too, because there's a lot of work to do to get the facts straight. And Frank, I just I really appreciate what you're doing, and I appreciate your taking this time to be on Farm to Table Talk. Well, thank you very much for having me, Roger. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks. You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. If you like what you hear, go to farmtotabletalk.com and follow us on 